0: Hi, guys. Thanks for coming out. My name's Marie. I'm going to be talking to you guys a little bit about the technical challenges that are associated with uh, scale up of clean meat. Um, so some of the bottlenecks that we're facing right now are uh, picking the right type of cells, the media and the scale up in the form of bioreactors. So I'm going to touch on each of these individually. I'll start off with the cells. Uh, some of the traits that we are looking for within the cells. We want them to be fast and easy to grow. We want them to be long lasting and we want them to be flexible. So I want to jump in on this a little bit. So these are four different types of cells that we are able to currently grow in the lab and use to make meat. We have, uh, access to embryonic stem cells that we can use to make several different meat types. We can also use mesenchymal stem cells. So those are stem cells that are found naturally within adult bodies. Um, So if you guys have an issue with taking embryonic stem cells to create meat, it's actually something that we can uh, take biopsies, take cell types from uh, individual adults and make meat that way. Um, Additionally, we can take cells from individual cell types, uh, such as satellite cells, which is kind of like a baby muscle cell. So it's not as as um, immature as a stem cell, but it's still pretty young where we can kind of train it to do something else if we want to. Um, and then additionally, we can actually do something called induced pluripotence where we can take theoretically any type of cell. We can take a feather. We can take a hair follicle. We can take a skin scraping. We can take a cheek swab. And technically uh, or theoretically, we can take those cells and turn those into uh, to stem cells. And then in turn, we can Uh, tell them to turn into any cell type that we want. So I'm saying in theory a lot because we haven't been able to take any cell out there and turn it into any cell that we want to, but we have been able to take a lot of different cell types and turn them into specific cell types of interest. So I think that's a really exciting area of research that needs uh, further exploration. Um, So the next thing that I want to talk about is the ability for us to take these cells and rather than continuously harvest them from animals, because obviously if we want to be able to grow meat without animals, we're going to need to not use animals to grow the meat, right? Um, so if we want to be able to take these cells and have them continuously grow without needing to collect them uh, over and over again, we need to start thinking about how we can keep these cells in a state where they are technically immortal. And so with that, I want to get into a little bit of cellular anatomy. So bear with me and I'll walk you through this slide a little bit. Here we have our cells again. Um, This little green sphere here is what I like to call the cell brain, also known as the nucleus. Uh, Within the nucleus is all of the uh, genetic information that is necessary to take an individual cell and turn that into billions of cells that make up something like a human being. Um, And that genetic information is also known as DNA. Um, And DNA is usually uh, wrapped up in a form of uh, something called chromatin, which is what we are seeing here in that little X shape. Um, And what happens is over time, this chromatin, uh, as cells divide and the chromatin um, is also copied and passed on to future generations of cells over time about 60 cell divisions in we hit something called a hayflick limit and what happens is as our cells divide the machinery that's required for the dna to be replicated isn't 100% efficient so the ends of the chromosomes actually get uh they get where they get worn down a little bit with every cell division um and if you see on the on the chromatin structure uh the ends are light uh lime green i don't think that chromatin is actually hot pink and lime green. I haven't personally seen real chromatin before. It's very small. Um, but I think that this is just a visual. Um, but the the lime green is something that's called a telomere. And what those do is they serve as a buffer during every cellular division. Um, but again, over time, this cellular division uh, will eventually wear down all of the telomeres and then important genes that are required for things like metabolism or telling the cell to not kill itself. Because literally, if a cell doesn't know what to do, it's going to commit suicide. These poor things. Um, But anyway, so uh, luckily, we have been able to discover a protein called telomerase. And telomerase acts by actually adding telomeres back onto your chromosomes. So the more research that we do into telomerase, the more that we can understand in terms of large-scale meat production. But we can also look into more things like curing diseases, curing aging, understanding how cancer works. So it's a lot of really exciting research going on with with telomerase. Um, So the next thing I want to address in terms... Terms of the types of cells that we want is the flexibility. So just off the top of my head, I can think of at least seven different cell types that are needed in order to make up meat. Uh, on the top, we have our we have our skin cells, we have our bone cells, we have our blood cells, fat cells, uh, cells that are responsible for making connective tissue. Um, we also have neurons. And then, of course, muscle. So these are all seven very different types of cells. Um, and it would be ideal if we would be able to take an, a cell type, uh, really understand how to grow it in, in a controlled setting, and then also be able to get these cells to differentiate and change into all of these different cell types. And that's something that, has already been shown uh, to be doable. So we can do it through media additives. We can even do it through the architecture of the scaffolding that we're putting the cells on. Um, And additionally, we can do that through genetic editing. Um, So with that, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the next bottleneck, which is the media, or cell food, if you will. Um, So the media, um, when you think about the role of media, the first thing is that um, it needs to provide an adequate environment for the cells to live in, basically tricking the cells into thinking that they're still in the animal. Um, So we need the right pH, the right temperature, the right osmotic pressure so the cells don't explode. They like to do that if they're not happy. Um, Next thing is they provide a lot of vitamins and minerals. There's also lipids in there. A lot of cells are actually made up of lipid. Uh, You know, cell skin is just a lipid membrane. So lots of fats that are needed in order to keep cells happy. Um, The other thing is protein. Obviously, in order for one cell to turn into two cells, they are going to need building blocks to actually make another cell. Um, And finally, growth factors. So... The cool thing is, is that out of all of these, we've been able to use plants in order to produce, to, uh, to produce four of these, uh, requirements. Now, the one hiccup, though, is these growth factors. So that, that is the main issue, um, in terms of the bottlenecks, in terms of the cost of, of making meat right now. This is why a chicken nugget is going to be $400 if we're growing it, uh, instead of, harvesting it from an animal. So I want to talk a little bit about where we are currently getting our growth factors as well as some of the options for where we can get them later on. Um, so originally we were getting our growth factors from baby cows. Obviously, we cannot do that. Um, so now we've started to get them through recombinant protein production. We're replacing cows with bioreactors. Do you guys see the foreshadowing that I just did? Um so with that, um, we are able to do something called recombinant protein production, where we actually take the gene that's associated with this protein or the growth factor, put it inside of a bacterium, have these bacteriums grow up very, very uh, and very fast and very high yield and then harvest the proteins from the bacteria. But there are other options as well. We can explore uh, plant-based growth factors or analogs. We might even be able to use chemical synthesis of the proteins that are found in plants in order to replicate these growth factors. And we can also isolate growth factors from cells that naturally produce them in the body, which is where we're actually getting them from when we harvest blood from baby cows. But rather than making a cow, we can just grow the cells that are responsible for growing the growth factors to begin with. Um, there There is one... One other option that I want to explore with you, and in doing so, uh, first we need to walk through the role of a growth factor. Um, so the growth factor serves serves as a uh, a form of a signal. So in this in this demonstration, it's what the ligand is representing. So it's produced and released by another cell. Uh, it then binds to the target cell's cell surface receptor, and then when that happens, it trill it triggers an intracellular pathway. Which in response to this uh, pathway, we get a genetic transcription change, and that. That in turn is what causes the growth. So what I'm exploring right now is this bit right here, this genetic transcription, and trying to really cut out all of the middlemen. Instead of relying on these growth factors in order to get the cell to do what I want, which is grow, I'm actually just designing a uh, a gene sequence that allows the cell, assuming that it has all the nutrients that it needs, to just continuously grow until we take it out of the environment that it's not happy in anymore. Um, so I'm currently working on that at Harvard Medical School with Dr. Church, which, by the way, uh, I met him at EA Global last year. He was giving a talk and said that he was interested in exploring clean meat. And so I made a beeline to him right after the talk. And now I'm in his lab. So thank you, EA Global. Uh, and <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so these are some of the tools that I'm working on right now. I don't have time to get into them. But if anybody has any questions, I have office hours from 3 to 3.30 and I would love to love to jump into that with you. Um, and so with that, I would like to end with the bioreactors. So my money is on large scale suspension growth because that's currently what, uh, what bioreactors are using or what um, pharmaceutical companies are using right now. Um, so what we're looking for is something that's energy efficient, sterile, easy to use and obviously scalable. So far, we are able to get muscle cells to grow in suspension. So all we're needing to do now is just kind of tweak that. Um, so here are some of my little turkey micro nuggets floating around in suspension, very happy. Um, so, in terms of energy efficiency, the first thing that I saw when I googled a solar powered bioreactor was this baby right here. So, obviously, we need a little bit of work to go before we have that happening. Um, but in terms of sterility, again, this is something that biopharmaceutical industries are using constantly. This is only a 2,000 liter reactor. They've gotten up to 400,000 liters. So, uh, they're already doing a lot of the work for us. And in terms of easy to use, I have personally also already used one. So if I can do it, you guys can do it too. If you know how to use a computer and you know how to work a hose and you know not to sneeze where you're not supposed to sneeze, you can grow meat in a bioreactor. So with that, I want to leave you with this image, which is a current large-scale cell production facility used for biopharmaceuticals. So it might look a little complicated, might look a little expensive, and I would agree with you. But I would say in comparison to what large-scale meat production facilities look like right now, this is definitely a step up. And the point is, is that we are already here, thanks to the biopharmaceutical industry, thanks to current research that's already happening that doesn't even have any sort of relationship to clean meat. And so we are part of this biological revolution that's happening right now, where we can actually harness the power within genetics, within biological life, to create not just meat and not just food, but we can actually create life that is more efficient, that's safer and more humane and, I believe more altruistic than ever before. So thank you very much, Natalie.
1: Thank you so much, Marie. Um, Is this on? Yes. (laughs) I don't think many of us have had so much science so eloquently put in 15 minutes. Thank you. Okay, I will be shorter and far less technical, I promise. I just want to outline some of the recent developments in consumer acceptance of clean meat. And there are three things I'd like to say. So, first of all, a lot of the polls, both formal and informal, are uh, methodologically lacking and um, not particularly useful. That said, the second thing is that even given all of those limitations, it's clear that the number of people who are interested in consuming clean meat is very, very high. Um, So there's a lot of potential there. And thirdly, there are ways in which we can frame clean meat to make it even more attractive to consumers and to institutions. As the name of this talk suggests, we've already made significant progress with clean meat as one of those framing steps. And there are others that we're thinking about and researching. So first on to the existing informal polls. I mean, these go back to 2012, which I believe is the equivalent of millennia in clean meat years. Um, but even in those early days, in The Guardian at least, around 70% of people said they would eat lab grown meat. Clean meat, of course, ultimately will not be lab grown meat. I think the 2014 poll Shows something that was lacking from earlier polls in The Guardian in that it actually asked people about how they felt about clean meat as an alternative to conventional factory farm meat rather than whether they would just eat it um, in a sort of futuristic setting or a hypothetical setting without the context of conventional factory farm meat. The mirror, um, hopefully not too reflective of of british society 's standards also fairly um, optimistic in 2016 poll. I think the Sam Harris Twitter poll, another um, not completely formal methodology, was extremely promising. That should be 83%, yes, not 3%. Um, and the latest Memphis Meat survey, again, looks very promising. Of course, there are a huge number of problems with these kinds of pollings, Uh, the way in which you phrase the question has a huge effect, the different options available for answers have a huge effect, Um, there's nothing to stop people answering the poll several times, Um, and of course not all of these media outlets will capture everything important about public sentiment. Um, I'll just show you a few of my favourite Guardian headlines to underline that point. So um, yeah, perhaps their concerns aren't completely representative of British society, but this is encouraging. And just a quick note to say, the way in which formal polls are reported can be just as misleading as the informal polls. There was a paper from 2015, which was titled something like, Educated consumers don't think clean meat is an ideal solution. That is a gross misrepresentation of, of what the study was about. It was widely reported as demonstrating clean meat wasn't particularly, going to be particularly well accepted... But actually, the 2,000 people polled in that survey were asked, how can we solve the problem of the meat industry? There was a number of options, such as eat less meat, eat no meat, um, support plant-based meat or clean meat. And participants could only make one choice. So this study really tells us nothing about how we can accept consumers to adopt clean meat. Okay, so now... The the point that I think those earlier formal and informal polls make is that even if we take them at their, you know, at face value and say, okay, even if less than 50%, even if only 10 or 20% of consumers are going to be interested in adopting clean meat, that is huge. When we compare that to, for example, the current plant-based meat market where less than half a percent um, of the market as plant-based meat, and yet companies in that space are doing fantastically well. So even on the most pessimistic view of those surveys, which I think is incorrect, we have reason to be hugely optimistic. Okay, I'll turn now to some of the things we can do to to frame clean meat accurately um, and to maximise the chances of consumer adoption going as well as possible. The first hurdle was really the name, and I think that's something that's now been well-established and for the right reasons, clean meat has been picked up by the vast majority of media outlets and there's really been a very significant shift to from lab based meat and cultured meat which were confusing and misleading towards clean meat which is both a nod to the clean energy sector and and emphasizes that this meat is genuinely just less dirty than than the meat produced in the conditions on factory farms. So here we have a graph by GFI, which was published, uh, I think, a month or so ago, showing sort of the rise of clean meat usage. And in terms of calling clean meat meat, which it unquestionably is at a cellular level, um, even the North American Meat Institute seems to be supporting uh, not restricting the use of meat to conventional animal agriculture. Moving beyond the name, um, in terms of How we can optimally frame clean meat uh, more broadly. Um, I've done what you're not supposed to do in presentations and just dumped a load of text in really small font. But uh, to summarise that, framing is really important. Consumers seem to be more inclined to purchase clean meat when they're made aware of the environmental advantages, the human health advantages, the advantages in terms of sustainability one particularly interesting challenge that will be addressed soon is this feeling that clean meat is somehow not natural. And there's been some interesting research on this. There are a number of approaches, I think, might be viable going forward. One of those could be to say, well, actually, no, it's not natural. But the, the natural way in which we're producing meat at the moment is, is fraught with problems. And things that are unnatural, such as antibiotics, have been hugely beneficial Another way could be to stress the fact that it is to a large extent natural in that cells are growing as they naturally would, um, whether that's in an animal or in a bioreactor is in some sense beside the point. And there are sort of other framings that um, can challenge what people, how people perceive the natural to be good. So fornalytics is in partnership with GFI and funded by ACE, conducting an experiment that's ongoing at the moment to to address how we should... F- frame clean meat in a wider context. Um, and yeah, with, with that, I conclude the very brief section on consumer acceptance and really hope that you will come and speak to both Marie and I at 3.30 this afternoon. Thank you so much.
2: All right, we've got a few questions, but only time for probably just one right now. So for those who have questions that we don't get to, go see them at office hours um an interesting question is just what is the hardest part of this and the questioner frames it as saying if we're unable to get to a clean meat future if 100 years from now with all the work and energy that goes into it we still can't get there what do you think is the most likely reason that we won't get there and maybe this person should go work on that problem
0: I, I honestly think that the biology is there. Um, the only reason why we could have any sort of hardship in terms of not getting there, uh, physically would probably be due to social issues, whether it be, you know, um, regulations put in place, laws put in place to make sure that it doesn't happen, uh, considering who we have, you know, fighting against us. But the biology, uh, in my opinion is, is there and ready. So be social, social issues with haters.
2: All right, that was a short answer. So speaking of possible haters, I was surprised to see the kind of acceptance, seemingly acceptance of using the term meat from the meat industry. What do you think the role of the meat industry is going to be? Are they going to be adopters, facilitators, opponents, haters?
1: I think there's been some some encouraging uh, evidence of late. So the context of that comment um, from the North American Meat Institute was the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, which uh, they could probably also do with a name change, um, had uh put forward a petition saying we can't call clean meat meat and this was opposed by the institution which contains uh tyson and cargill and i think this is promising because it suggests they see themselves as part of the protein industry um the the meat production industry and not the farming industry so i think that's i think that's encouraging and you know they've both invested in memphis meat so um the signs the signs are looking good i'd say at present
2: cool very interesting very encouraging Find them at Office Hours for more. Marie Gibbons and Natalie Cargill, thank you very much.